Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, the interview episodes. We are back for the second of our interviews with University of Toronto historian and general editor of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, David Wilson. If you missed uh, the last episode where we discussed the radical Irish revolutionary group, the Fenians, and the work of the Canadian spy service to thwart them, then do go back and have a listen, but maybe not quite yet. Uh, For today, we have one of the great tragic stories of Canadian history, the tale of Thomas Darcy McGee and his assassination in 1868. I've already introduced David Wilson in the last show, so I won't do so exhaustively here again, except to say that there really is no one better equipped to take us through the life and ultimately uh, untimely death of Thomas Darcy McGee. So David Wilson, uh, welcome back to 1867 and all that. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Yeah, again, again. Okay. So you've now published two full-length books on McGee, kind of uh, taking his his life in half and and doing a whole book on on each of those. Um, Not to mention when, uh, you know, McGee shows up in other work you've published, like your last book on the Fenians. So I know I'm asking a lot of you today to only focus on part of his life and to winnow it down to podcast format. I want to start with perhaps one contradiction or seeming contradiction that's the first thing I think many have to deal with when we touch on McGee. And, you know, Thomas Darcy McGee, the man who would later come to be a father of Confederation, a man who helped create Canada as a constitutional monarchy loyal to Britain, he once signed himself off in a public letter as Thomas Darcy McGee, a traitor to the British government. So uh, maybe we should start with that seeming contradiction or contradiction. Where did where did McGee come from and how did he embrace, but then move away from his Irish revolutionary roots? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, uh, the transformation uh, of a revolutionary in 1848 to a liberal conservative uh, father of confederation in Canada uh, some 15 years later. Uh, and it's an extraordinary story. There are uh, contradictions and continuities and we can certainly get into both. Um, I should just place this in the context of McGee's early life because it's quite a remarkable early life. Uh, he was born in uh, Carlingford, moved to Wexford when he was, I think, eight years old. His uh, his mother died en route in a, in a coach accident, and um, he was brought up by his father and then his uh, uh, his stepmother uh, and the rest of the family did not like the stepmother, which is one main reason why at the age of 17, uh, he left to visit his Aunt Bella in Rhode, Rhode Island, in Providence, Rhode Island. And he really hits the ground running in the United States. Uh, in, in Ireland, before leaving as a teenager, he'd been a great admirer of Daniel O'Connell, uh, known as the Liberator, the uh, man who brought about Catholic emancipation Uh, in Ireland in 1829, Mm. uh, and who in the 1840s was beginning to uh, work for home rule uh, for an independent Irish parliament within the framework of the British Empire, within the framework of the United Kingdom, in fact. Uh, So so McGee is deeply influenced by Daniel O'Connell and deeply influenced by uh, Father Matthew, who was a, a temperance crusader, so Darcy McGee, the young Darcy McGee, is a constitutional nationalist, um, and he writes poems. His first writings, in fact, are in the cause of temperance, 
The uh, irony is the, the the irony is rich, given what comes later. There, yes, the irony is very rich indeed. And uh, he hits the ground running um, in the United States. He goes to Boston and uh, manages to get a job with the leading Irish Catholic newspaper in the United States, the Boston Pilot. Uh, and at the age of 17, he's writing articles for the Boston Pilot. And they're very good articles, too. Um, and two years later, he becomes the editor of the newspaper, which is an, an extraordinary feat for a 19-year-old. Mm. And um, he... Uh, he writes editorials, writes columns very much in favor of, uh, of Irish nationalism in its O'Connellite form, constitutional nationalism. He's not a revolutionary at this stage at all. Um, he's noticed by the folks back home in Ireland, and he's brought back uh, to work for a newspaper called the Freeman's Journal in Dublin, which was an O'Connellite newspaper. He becomes their parliamentary correspondent. So he goes to Westminster and writes uh, uh, scathing and humorous articles about uh, about speeches uh, in the House of Commons. Um, and uh, although he's employed by the Freeman's Journal, his heart is increasingly with uh, another newspaper called The Nation, which is associated with a group of Irish men who are uh, very much concerned not just with political independence for Ireland, the quest for political independence, but also with cultural independence. Uh, they're cultural nationalists. They're known as Young Ireland. Um, they're generally, um, as the name suggests, in their 20s. Uh, their spiritual leader is a Protestant by the name of Thomas Davis. They are a self-consciously ecumenical group. To, they want to bring Catholics and Protestants together. Uh, in a common cultural uh, background uh, to revive, the, as they would see it, the spirit, the soul of Ireland through its history, through its music, through its art, through its mm -hmm. literature. And, um, and initially, as I say, they, they, they're, a, they're not revolutionaries, but they will become revolutionaries. Uh, as O'Connell's campaign to bring about uh, an independent Ireland or a home rule Ireland uh, through uh, moral force means, as that stutters and then fails, uh, the young Islanders increasingly gravitate towards more militant approaches. And then we have, in 1845-46, the failure of the potato and the famine. And, um, and the famine is, I mean, it has horrendous consequences. Uh, McGee, as a young man, is living through uh, the worst crisis by far in modern Irish history. Uh, as one million people over the next five years, one million people out of a population of eight million uh, will die of hunger and disease, mm -hmm. and another million will emigrate. Um, and um, this is one of the radicalizing factors uh, for young Ireland. But the other, and actually an ultimately more important one, is the French Revolution of February of 1848. Because what this appears to demonstrate is that it's just a matter of the popular will rising up, uh, organized through a particular group, um, and overthrowing uh, oppressors, overthrowing tyranny, uh, as the Young Islanders would see it. So uh, if 
revolution was possible in France and then it cascades throughout Europe, then why not Ireland? And Ireland, they argue, is far more oppressed than France or uh, Italy or Germany or Austria. Um, so, um, so they increasingly move uh, in uh, early 1848 uh, towards a revolutionary position and McGee moves with them. And in 1848, um, as the Young Islanders try to launch a rising in the face of uh, repressive measures by the British government and its administration in Ireland, McGee actually goes to Scotland to organize a contingent of, Scot of Irish men, Young Islanders in Scotland, who will uh, hijack a ship. This is the plan. They will hijack a ship, um, an act of piracy, really, um, and take it to County Sligo in the west of Ireland uh, and link up with uh, ribbon men or agrarian radicals. And as McGee put it, hit the enemy in the back of the head where they least expected it, uh, while the main rising takes place further south. So he is a revolutionary. Um, and in 1848, um, the young McGee at the age of 23 has a position that is virtually indistinguishable from the position that will become known as Fenianism when the Fenian Brotherhood is founded a decade later. He's a revolutionary, uh, political revolutionary. Uh, he wants the abolition of landlordism in Ireland. He's a Republican. He's prepared to link up with agrarian secret societies. Uh, when he flees to the United States with a price on his head uh, for on charges of treason, as you say, he announces himself a traitor to the British government. And he writes an article, among many others, in which he argues that Canada needs a revolution or it needs nothing. Uh, he wants to export revolution to Canada. He wants, uh, he wants to break the British Empire uh, in North America. Uh, he wants Canada to become part of the American Empire of Liberty, as he saw it in 1848. So if, if uh, McGee had suddenly died... Um, in New York, when he starts up his American Celt newspaper uh, uh, espousing these ideas. And had you been asked to guess what his trajectory would be, you would have assumed that he would have taken his place in a long line of Irish-American nationalists. Uh, you would have assumed that he would have joined the Fenian Brotherhood. Uh, you would have assumed that he would have dedicated his life to the cause of revolution, republicanism, uh, independence, and liberty for Ireland. And you would be completely wrong. Yes, but because by the time he comes to Canada at the sort of towards the end of the 1850s, he's changed quite a bit. And, and even when he arrives, he's not quite sure which kind of political party to call home. I mean, maybe you could quickly take us through how uh, McGee comes to Canada. What's the, you know, he's, he's obviously has, he has a potential future, you would think, in the United States, such a huge Irish Catholic uh, population, settlements, lots of literary, um, uh, political and public opportunities. What's What brings him to Canada and how has he changed by that time? There are two major factors here, uh, both of which become extremely relevant to his Canadian career. And the first is that uh, in 1849 and 1850, he gradually reconsiders and reevaluates his revolutionary position concerning Ireland. And uh, he, there, were, there were two two lessons that you could draw from the failure of the 1848 rising. And one was, okay, we've got to organize more effectively in the future and get it right the next time. That was the lesson that the people who had become Fenians drew. 
And the other one, the lesson that McGee increasingly uh, learned from this experience was that it was actually impossible for uh, Irish revolutionaries to overcome uh, the most powerful empire in the world. It was, it would be, he said, like uh, the clay pot bashing itself against the iron pot. The clay pot, Ireland, would get shattered in the process. And if that's the case, if revolution is actually impossible, uh, then uh, in his view, it would be immoral to pursue a revolutionary course of action, counterproductive indeed, because it would just invite more repression. So he moves back to a moral force position. Uh, a he moves back to a constitutional nationalist position and alienates many of his former young Ireland allies in the process. So that's one uh, element that we need to consider, uh, his repudiation of revolutionary republicanism and his embrace of moral force, constitutional nationalism for Ireland. The other factor we have to consider is a growing disillusionment with life in the United States. Now, interestingly, this was shared by almost all Irish American nationalists, including those who remained Republican. There's a great deal of social and cultural alienation from the United States, even though it remained a political model for Ireland. Socially and culturally, many Irish nationalists in the United States felt alienated, uh, none more so than McGee. Um, and the closer he got into American life, the less he liked it. He was experiencing uh, the waves of nativism, the Know Nothing movement against Irish Catholic immigrants who'd been flooding in uh, in the context of the famine. Um, he, he was witnessing slum conditions in the cities, the desperate conditions that many Irish immigrants experienced. Not all, by any stretch of the imagination, but those who stayed in the cities uh, were prey to demagogic ward bosses. Uh, crime levels were high. Uh, uh, alcohol levels were high. Uh, he, he, he believed that he was witnessing a breakdown um, in in family life, uh, in, uh, in basic, basic uh, uh, decent morality. Uh, he believed that the Irish were becoming corrupt in the United States. And he, and he increasingly felt that the United States itself was a corrupt country run by corrupt politicians um, in which demagoguery ruled the day, um, a culture characterized by what we would now call celebrities, um, he called it a nervous, a nervous state of constant excitement, or a constant state of nervous excitement, rather, for the United States. Um, if it's not a Swedish nightingale, i.e. the singer Jenny Lind here, it'll be a boxing star somewhere else. Um, it was, it was a, a culture that was ridden with guns, was violent, uh, it was out of control, um, and it was Protestant. And so increasingly, McGee counters this with a very conservative form of Catholicism. Um, and it's actually crucial to him coming to Canada. In the early 1850s, although he was nominally a Catholic before, he converts to a very conservative or ultramontane form of Catholicism. And it's actually this, ultimately, that will draw him to Canada. Because when he, when he visits Canada, and particularly visits French Canada, uh, he sees a culture where, yes, although the Orange Order is strong in English-speaking Canada, uh, in French Canada, Catholics can live their lives pretty much um, 
uh, at ease with themselves without being subjected to this kind of Protestant nativism it's getting in the United States. And then he investigates further in English Canada, and he decides that actually the Orange Order is quite different in Canada from what it was in Ireland, um, that actually relations between most Protestants and most Catholics in English Canada are pretty good. He's still against the Orange Order. Uh, he says he says uh, relations can be pretty good except for the 12th of July, the great Orange celebration, when they all go mad, of course, quote unquote. But he thinks he thinks there's room for compromise and room for um, some kind of uh, you know uh, reconciliation yeah. between Catholics and Protestants in Canada. This is what draws him uh, yeah. to Canada at the very time he's. He's losing ground in the United States. He's lost it with revolutionary nationalists. Um, and uh, he's also lost it with the Catholic Church uh, because the Catholic Church uh, does not like Darcy McGee's plans to bring lots of Irish Catholics from urban squalor into the Canadian countryside. This is one of his plans, a sort of a colonization plan to get Irish Catholic immigrants onto the land. I must say a lot of orange men in Canada did not that, did not like that either. No. Uh, he's alienated many within the church. He's alienated uh, many nationalists. Sales of his newspaper, The American Celt, are plummeting. He's offered a job uh, uh, in Montreal uh, with a new newspaper, the new era. And this is indeed a new era in his own life. Now he so yeah, that's a nice setup. So he comes to Montreal, and you know he just instantly sort of has this incredible impact. And he, I, I talked a little bit about this in this past season, where I talked about how he's he's weighing up who to, who to, who to join, like which side, which political side to join. The reformers in English Canada associated with George Brown, although slightly different in in, in Montreal and uh, uh, Canada East, and and so he initially does ultimately side with the reformers but then but then here, there's another switch because then you know he even he even joined Sandfield McDonald's government in the early 1860s and yet by the time um 1864 comes along he's he's now siding with uh with uh, Johnny McDonald and 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 the the Tories uh, maybe quickly walk us through through that switch how he how he switches from a uh, a reformer to becoming a kind of on 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 the Tory side of the the those pushing for confederation in the 1860s. Right. Rather than walking you through it, I'll hop, skip and jump through it. Hop, skip. Okay. It's really complicated. Yeah. Uh, You would get mired in uh, political intrigue and details. But suffice it to say that a key issue was uh, separate school, improved separate school legislation uh, for Catholics in English-speaking Canada. It's always it's always schools. I, I, I it always comes down to education. Yeah, I mean, uh, education and religion. It's, I mean, it's uh, absolutely crucial factors in the mid nineteenth century Canadian world, and we can easily lose sight of that in our more secular uh, culture today. Although education and religion are becoming more important uh, in uh, the twenty first century again uh, for different reasons, but for Darcy McGee. Uh, I mean, one of the things that attracted him to Canada was that uh, children could be educated in Catholic schools in Canada in a way they couldn't in the United States. The French fact in Canada uh, uh, had some presented some advantages for Catholics in English-speaking Canada under the system, but he wanted improved uh, separate school legislation, and he bet on George Brown and the reformers uh, to obtain this. 
but he increasingly came to see actually that um, that the conservatives, even though they had a very strong orange component, the conservatives were actually more likely to vote for improved separate school legislation for Catholics than the reformers were. And I, I think uh, without going through all the uh, sort of kaleidoscopic um, and microscopic political changes that take place, that's that's what we that that's what you've got to keep your eye on. Uh, that's what keep your eye on that particular ball, and you'll see why he moved towards the Conservatives uh, and moved uh, to Macdonald from being one of Macdonald's uh, greatest opponents, most eloquent opponents, uh, to being uh, one of his closest supporters. Yeah, and he so it's funny he's often called the as much a prophet of Confederation as as the Father of Confederation. I was thinking about McGee today and thinking about how he is, you know, we he's as much a literary figure as as a man of politics. You know, you know him for his style, his speeches, his humor, his literary output. I mean, is that I mean before we turn to sort of the later eighteen sixties, I wonder if is that do you think that's just as important in understanding McGee as as anything else? Oh, absolutely, uh, uh, and in fact. That can actually overshadow um, his uh, his political, organizational, and administrative skills because he was very good at those as well. And there's sometimes an assumption that because you're a, a renowned poet, uh, as McGee was in his time, uh, and because you make great speeches, therefore you're impractical when it comes to other uh, questions. Actually, McGee was was very practical, which is something I learned in the course of uh, uh, of writing the biography. Um, but his style was 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 at the same time very very important. His speeches were magnificent. Now, if you if you go to McGee's poetry, uh, it does not stand up today, um, and it's hard to read. Although McGee was regarded in the mid nineteenth century in Ireland uh, as one of the greatest poets of his time, and in Canada he had a huge reputation as a poet. Tastes change, but where where you can really get a sense of his poetry today is through his speeches, uh, his poetic speeches, his turns of phrase. And we know a fair amount about his oratorical style because there are a lot of descriptions of it. Uh, you know, this, this um, unkempt figure, uh, ill-dressed figure shuffling into the room and, and uh, people thinking, oh, he, oh where's McGee? The, the, a porter has come in to tell, to tell us his train is late or something like that. And then, and then as soon as he starts talking, um, you know the effect on people is spellbinding, and you and you you uh, you read this over and over and over again in different contexts. So he was a magnificent orator, actually. In it turns out, in a low key way, uh, that the standard form of oratory in the nineteenth century was bombastic, and McGee inverted that. He drew people in, uh, which is very interesting too. And he and he studied other uh, speakers whom he admired, other orators whom he admired. Um, and incorporated the techniques that he felt uh, fitted him best and worked most effectively. So um, reading his speeches is an, ab- is an absolute pleasure. Uh, they, are, they are quite wonderful. Uh, and that's one of the things that, uh, that I really enjoyed uh, about writing the book. And it's very difficult to capture uh, that as a biographer without uh, having one long quotation after another long quotation after another long quotation. Um, and I think the best, best thing you can do to get a sense of McGee's speeches is just, to, is just to go to one of them and read them aloud to yourself 
uh, or to anyone who, who uh, is willing to listen. And you'll get a sense of the cadence, of the rhythm, uh, of the power uh, of the presentation. So he had a massive reputation uh, as a brilliant uh, orator. And I think that lies behind the image of him uh, as the prophet of confederation. Uh, I'd also say one more thing. You mentioned his humor. Um, uh, one uh, contemporary said, you always knew where McGee was in a room because that's where people were laughing. Uh, I mean, he had enormous energy. Uh, he had a great wit. Uh, he was, I mean, in his time, a few years in Canada, uh, he wrote a popular history of Ireland, uh, was it 600 pages, that really was popular. I mean, it was still being read in Ireland in the early 20th century. Uh, mm -hmm. He wrote books of poetry. He wrote a play. Uh, he, uh, he got a law degree. I mean, the man, the man was, had an absolutely phenomenal uh, career, an extraordinary energy. And I wonder sometimes if there were depressive moments within this sort of manic world that he lived. He, I mean, he switched from being a, a teetotaler to being a serious drinker. And um, there, there are many descriptions of him being out of control and behaving appallingly when drunk uh, at dinner, you know, just making a complete idiot of himself. And yet he could produce so much and, um, uh, and, and switch to be, to be really coherent and brilliant. And, I, and then every, every so often you will read uh, that he spent two or three days um, in bed. And you think, oh, is this is this kind of a depressive phase that he's getting into? If it was, it didn't last long. Um, a truly remarkable personality in so many ways. Yeah, and he's you know it's funny. I, I went back and read some of his speeches in preparation for this past season. And I, I mean, the one thing I the only thing I would say is I found them like en entirely engrossing, fascinating, funny. But I I kept thinking, I kept wondering if if it would convey today because I thought I cut so many of the references were sort of inside jokes or kind of humorous classical references or references to various things. I thought, Oh, do we, would we get them today? And I, I just, that was my only, my only, um, uh, uh, worry about it is that so many of the jokes were, they weren't in jokes, but they were so much rooted in his time and, and what the kinds of knowledge that, 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 that he would know his, his listeners would have. He seemed to have this uncanny ability to, to know what would come off as funny and amusing and kind of, you know, in, invert things in the way, uh, in the way a good stand-up comedian will. Yeah. You know, I think he had some of the, uh, uh the art of a stand-up comedian as well as the substance of uh, a deep thinker. I mean, he was the most intellectually gifted, of the, of the Fathers of Confederation, in my view. Uh, but you're, I agree entirely about your assessment of his speeches. Um, there are so many contemporary references. The, the more you know the period, the funnier uh, and more entertaining and, in, and more engaging his speeches become. And it's a, it's a little like trying to teach uh, Jonathan Swift uh, uh, in an 18th century class, or a course on 18th century literature. Um, uh, how do you appreciate the satire of Gulliver's Travels or Tale of a Tub, unless you know the culture of early 18th century Ireland and Britain inside out, you can't. So you wind up explaining jokes and then they're not yeah. funny anymore. And you know? done, it's, it's true. Uh, it's, it's still worth doing. All, all right. I, I want to zoom forward. Um, obviously, we're overlooking the fact that he, you know, he became this great spokes, spokesman for, uh, you know, for Irish uh, Catholicism, Irish Catholics in Canada. He's a real spokesperson for the uh, on the educational issues on separate school question. 
But one of the things you capture really well in your biography is the extent to which by 1867, he's, he's really a man in decline in terms of his influence. And it's, it's obviously frustrating to him. And, you know, he's left out famously of the first uh, cabinet, the first executive and uh, that Johnny McDonald puts together. Um, you know, wh- what had happened to McGee's status as, as, a, as a voice for Irish Catholics by, by this time? Well, uh, I mean, there, there are several reasons behind this. I mean, uh, the, the reason he was excluded from cabinet actually uh, mainly had to do with vying between Ontario and Quebec for the number of representatives that they should have in a 12-man cabinet. Of course, it was all men. Um, and uh, McGee initially refused to step down because he, he believed that there should be a, a representative of uh, Irish Catholics in, or English-speaking Catholics more generally, uh, in the cabinet. And when a substitute was found um, in Edward Kenny uh, from Nova Scotia, then McGee agreed to, to uh, back down uh, because otherwise MacDonald would have resigned and there would have been um, an immediate crisis, a return uh, to political stalemate, if you like, um, uh, immediately after Confederation. At the same time, though, within... Uh, within um, the Irish Catholic community, insofar as there was such a thing. Uh, uh, McGee's position on the Fenian Brotherhood had uh, alienated a lot of people, Um, not a majority, but a very, very significant and voluble minority. Um, And this was, was, I think, um, mainly because of McGee's strategy against the Fenians, which was... As someone who'd been a revolutionary himself, um, he turned against the Fenians with all the zeal of a convert. And uh, he believed that the, 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 the course of action of the Fenians in Ireland and in Canada was absolutely disastrous. Uh, that in, in, Canada, in, in Ireland, it would, uh, it, would, it would basically reverse progress on reform. Uh, and in Canada, um, it would it would lead to intense conflict between Catholics and Protestants, uh, uh, and it could turn Canada into uh, a kind of um, ethno-religious quagmire. So he, he was desperate to avoid that. And his strategy was to uh, was basically to take a very, very strong stand against the Fenians, um, which took great moral courage, actually, because he was subjected to threat, lots of threats and, uh, and, and much press hostility as well in the United States and among Irish nationalist papers in Canada. Uh, but he took a very strong stand and he believed that if he, that if Irish Catholics in Canada were faced with a choice, you know, loyalty or Fenianism, the vast majority of them would choose loyalty. So was, he, he developed a strategy of polarization uh, in which he wanted to isolate and marginalize the Fenians. But a lot of Irish Catholics, when faced with that choice, um, refused to refused to actually take it, um, uh, and they began to resent McGee for hobnobbing with Protestants, for mixing with Orange men. Uh, uh, he was increasingly regarded as someone who was much more interested in advancing his own career uh, than he was with uh, advancing the cause of Irish Catholics in Canada, um, and. Um, Many, many Irish Catholics were ambivalent about Fenianism. Some were strong supporters, uh, some were, were strong opponents, but in the middle, many were ambivalent. 
Um, and when McGee basically uh, sort of threw down the gauntlet and said, you know, you're either a Fenian or you're not, um, this this rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So in the in the previous election, and this becomes very important for his assassination, critically important. In the election, in, in the election just before he was assassinated, um, uh, the first uh, federal election in the new Canada in September, uh, well, campaigned August September of eighteen sixty seven. Um, McGee's hold on his constituency of uh, his area of Montreal West uh, was slipping uh, in the Irish areas. Uh, he, he retained a majority among French Canadian voters and among uh, English speaking Protestant voters, but in the Irish Catholic areas, areas that he previously won easily, uh, he actually lost uh, narrowly. Uh, this it has to be said, this was also in the, in the context of McGee himself being ill, fighting two elections at once, uh, and a campaign of intense physical intimidation by uh, Fenian supporters and sympathizers uh, against anyone who was out to vote for McGee in these Irish uh, Catholic areas of the city, Griffintown, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it was clear that, uh, that his comfortable, safe hold on the Irish Catholic vote uh, had slipped significantly. Um, so uh, no longer in cabinet, no longer making a salary. He's ill. Uh, he goes off the bottle. Uh, he finally kicks the habit and he's determined to do so largely, I think, because he's confined to home with an ulcerous leg. Uh, and his wife, Mary, is determined to keep drink away from him um, and succeeds. Um, uh, but he can't make a living as a lecturer anymore uh, because he's confined to his room. Uh, he will get better, but it's a slow process. He's in desperate financial circumstances. Um, his political career, which had been skyrocketing, has uh, now, because he's not in cabinet, is uh, stalling and, um, and could well go downhill because he's no longer guaranteed the support of Irish Catholics in Canada. Um, so it's actually the winter of 67, 68 is a low point for him. And he does sink into depression uh, at this period. He still works. He still reads 10 hours every day, apparently. <laughs> How you can do that while being depressed is utterly beyond me. But uh, I would say 10 hours a, a month at most under those circumstances. But um, uh, but this is where MacDonald decides to help him out. And um and get him a job as commissioner of patents at $4,000 a year. And uh, McGee decides that he's going to uh, quit politics, although McGee would never really have quit politics. I I don't believe that for a moment. Uh, But uh, uh, he decided to return to his first love, literature. He may well have quit as as an MP. Uh, I don't think he would ever have uh, lost his interest in an involvement with politics. Uh, But... He had a new life in front of him uh, in the spring of 1868 uh, uh, as someone who was going to focus on literature, who was going to have a stable salary, uh, who was not going to drink and whose health was going to get better. But other other events uh, in, in, intervened. Uh, what what happened on the, uh, the early hours of the 7th of April of, of 1868 on Sparker Street? And can we can we know what happened? We can get a rough idea. We'll never know exactly what happened. Uh, there are just too many conflicting stories. Um, the 
the night before uh, he's been speaking in Parliament, he gives a very good speech. It's sometimes called the finest speech of his career. It wasn't. It's been magnified in retrospect because of what happened afterwards. But he gives a very powerful speech, nonetheless, um, uh, about the virtues of confederation. And, um, and he's still walking with a cane. Uh, he goes to the, uh, uh, to the parliamentary store. There used to be a bar, but Teetotaler McGee has effectively prevented, uh, has, has moved a resolution to uh, close down the bar in the House of Commons. So uh, he goes to the store, he buys three cigars, and he walks with uh, a friend of his to the corner of Spark Street. Uh, he sees a group of people, um, uh, a group of four people who work in Parliament. Uh, he says goodbye to his friend. The four people who are heading in a different direction call out, um, good night, Mr. McGee, and he replies, Good morning. It is morning now. And he walks, smoking his cigar, uh, walks slowly with his cane towards Mrs. Trotter's boarding house on Spark Street. Um, and uh, the next thing we know is from Mrs. Trotter herself, who is waiting for her son to come home because um, he works uh, in Parliament as well. Um, and she suddenly uh, hears this rapid drumming on the window and there's a key fumbling in the lock. And she opens the door, and as she does so, she thinks a firecracker has gone off, um, only to find that there is a body slumped in front of her, the half-open door, uh, with the back of the head blown off. Um, and she turns on the light and sees blood everywhere. Um, and uh, Darcy McGee has been assassinated. So then the questions become... Um, who did it and why? And we will never know for certain what happened. We're reduced to plausible speculation, but some speculation is more plausible than other speculation. Yeah, well, there's obviously one man, uh, Patrick James Whalen, or I guess Jim Whalen, is ultimately, he's not the only one arrested, but he's the one charged and uh, and ultimately convicted and executed for the um for the for uh, the murder, um, I mean, what's the? How likely do you think it is that that he did it? What what, what are the what, what are the possibilities he didn't do it? Does this? I, I mean, I suppose there's a bigger question. Does it even matter? But I suppose as soon as a as soon as you get a, a significant assassination like this, maybe it's the JFK effect. You you instantly beginning to think about the the, the random alternatives. I mean, the, the case seems pretty strong against uh, Whalen, at least at least uh, in, in in some respects. Yeah. Um... The, the, the trial is absolutely fascinating because it seems like an open and shut case against Whelan until his defense lawyer takes the, takes the stand, takes the stage. Um, and one of, the, one of many ironies is this, that, of this is that Whelan was uh, prosecuted by an Irish Catholic QC from County Mayo in Ireland, James O'Reilly, and was defended by a former Grand Master of the Orange Order, uh, James, sorry, John Hilliard Cameron, uh, whose defense was absolutely magnificent. Uh, and, and his closing speech uh, was regarded as one of the greatest speeches ever given uh, in a Canadian trial. Uh, so uh, Whalen certainly got, uh, got a good defense. Um, and um, one way of, of entering this complex picture is to go to the very end. Uh, uh, the night before uh, Whelan is executed, is hanged, 
So it's now February the 10th, 1869. And he's visited by uh, the police magistrate in Ottawa, uh, an Irish Catholic by the name of Martin O'Gara, uh, and the county attorney, Robert Lease. And he tells them that he did not shoot Darcy McGee, but he tells them he knows who did shoot Darcy McGee. And he tells them that he was there when McGee was shot, which would actually have made him guilty as an accessory. Uh, and he would have been hanged for that under mm. the law. Um, um, was he telling the truth? Um, John A. MacDonald believed that he was uh, not telling the truth about someone else shooting McGee, uh, that Whelan himself uh, uh, shot McGee and was trying to save his anyone else who might be implicated in uh, uh, rightly or wrongly in the assassination of McGee. Uh, but uh, who knows? Um, uh, my own my own sense is that uh, first of all, well, more than a sense, there's strong circumstantial evidence. I would say overwhelming circumstantial evidence that Jim Whalen was a Fenian, uh, and there's some evidence to suggest that he might actually have been fairly high up in the organisation in Canada. Um, at the same time, there's no evidence to suggest that this was an authorized Fenian hit from the headquarters in New York. In fact, uh, the uh, president of the Fenian Brotherhood, then John O'Neill, the, quote, hero of Ridgeway, unquote, uh, repudiated uh, the assassination and said that it was a disgrace to the people of Ireland that such a thing should have been done. Uh, the, uh, the One of the key secret policemen who'd infiltrated the Fenian Brotherhood, uh, William Montgomery, also known as William McMichael, reported uh, that there was, that, that from headquarters, uh, that uh, although they weren't particularly sorry that McGee was dead, uh, it came as a complete surprise to them uh, and uh, that this hadn't been ordered. So it's, it's, it seems to have been a freelance operation. And, um, you know, if you look at, if you look at, uh, Whalen's past, uh, his connections with Fenianism are very, very interesting. And uh, do I have time to go into those? Uh, a few, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm interested in, in in the Whalen case. I mean, obviously, y y the question about whether it was planned is interest is is obviously one thing. But I, I think the point you're making is that obviously it's the motivation comes out of the kind of Fenian anger at McGee. And I, I'd be curious what what Whalen's uh, background is. Absolutely, and. Um, I mean, Whalen's a young man. He's in, I think, he's twenty-seven or so when he's uh, executed. I think I'll have to check that. Uh, from Tipperary, um, served in the British Army. He said in India, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, anything Whalen says, uh, actually, at the trial, cannot be trusted. Uh, you check evidence, and it's uh, and it doesn't match. Doesn't match at all. Uh, so, um, anyways, from Tipperary, may have been in the army. Was a tailor by trade. Um, and we do know uh, that he came from um, a seriously Irish nationalist family. Um, one of his brothers, uh, Joe Whalen, had a pub in Marlborough Street in Dublin where um, they suborned uh, Irish soldiers who were in the British Army into the Fenian Brotherhood. Um, and uh, Joe, Joe Whalen was quoted, this is entirely independent of uh, of, of Jim Whalen, absolutely nothing to do 
with Whelan, who's not in Dublin at the time. Joe Whelan is quoted, was quoted in the in trial in Ireland uh, as, uh, as saying that uh, all magistrates who oppose the Fenian Brotherhood should be assassinated in Ireland. So this gives you some idea of the militancy of uh, Joe Whelan. Another uh, of the brothers was out in the failed rising in uh, March 1867. We know that... Um, that Jim Whalen was very proud of his brothers. Um, we know we know that he was arrested in 1865 for uh, attempting to suborn Irish soldiers in the British Army in Canada into the Fenian Brotherhood. The charges didn't stick because uh, there was only one witness, the soldier. Uh, you need two witnesses to convict. But there's a cloud of suspicion hanging over his head here. Um, then uh, we know from other sources that he was absolute, and, and you, there's been some debate about the veracity of these sources, but I think there are some that are accurate, uh, that he was infuriated by McGee's um, uh, position against the Fenians, and particularly uh, about McGee's actions during the election of September, August, September 1867, where McGee reveals that he has information about the Fenian Brotherhood in Montreal, in particular in Canada in general, and he's going to leak some of it to discredit his opponent, uh, Bernard Devlin, who is supported by Fenians. And Devlin himself describes um, McGee as a traitor, uh, as an informer, um, and uh, people in in the crowd shout out, he's dead, cut off his ears, or he's dead. Meaning, of course, McGee, not not Devlin, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the traditional punishment for a traitor or an informer: a bullet through the back of the head. Um, and um, uh, we know that on two occasions during that election campaign, Whalen swore he was going to assassinate. Or we have witnesses who said Whalen swore he was going to assassinate McGee and staked out his house for two nights in a row. Um, and there's evidence again uh, on New Year's night of 1868. Uh, Whalen visited McGee's home in uh, uh, in, in Montreal. Uh, this at a time when when the Secret Service had reported that death threats against McGee uh, were, uh, were ramping up. Um, and fortunately, I think uh, for Darcy McGee, his brother John Joseph answered the door and was very apprehensive, very worried about what this what this man might do. Anyway, um, nothing happened under these circumstances, but again, it's highly suspicious behavior. And we, we know that Whalen was hanging around the areas that McGee lived uh, at, in Ottawa, Mrs. Trotter's boarding house, shortly before the uh, assassination. We have another witness who said that uh, Whalen brought a gun into the House of Commons uh, the week before, two weeks before, I can't remember which, the assassination. Uh, he was seen with a gun in his breast pocket. On the night of the assassination, uh, he was seen with a friend of his, James Kinsler, uh, patting, they both patted their breast pockets as McGee was speaking and scowled at him and pointed at him. Uh, you know, threatening behavior that was actually noted by um, one of the workers at the, um, one of the messengers at the house, wrote it in his diary. Um, before he even knew about the uh, assassination of McGee later that night. Uh, so there's a lot of... And then, then I mean, you, you also have to think about what what the police found when they went into his hotel room um, in Stars Hotel uh, in Ottawa 
the night after the assassin, actually the night of this, yeah, the, the night after the assassination. And what do they find? I mean, they find um, they find a death threat uh, of someone hanging, and you know, uh, and a rhyme next to it. You know, this. This, I can't remember the exact words, but it's something like this rope or cord of twine will suit me, will suit you better than me for a Valentine. Was this a, what was this doing? It seems like it was going to be sent in February. We're actually in April now. Uh, what does this death threat mean? Uh, we see that he had several copies of the Irish American newspaper indicate, this is a pro-invasion Fenian newspaper, suggesting that he was probably a distributor of the newspaper in Ottawa. We see membership cards of, uh, of the Hibernian Benevolent Society in Toronto, the St. Patrick's Society of, of uh, Montreal, which might be innocent, but these were also societies that had large numbers of Fenians and had begun to operate as Fenian front organizations. But most damningly of all, they find a gun that has been recently fired um, with one bullet pack put back in the chamber with fresh grease as if to hide the fact that it had been recently fired. And so much of the evidence in the trial hinges on whether or not that gun had been fired six or seven weeks earlier or whether it had been fired uh, within 48 hours of the police finding it. Um, and that's that's actually took me into a, a whole world of studying forensics and meeting up with forensic scientists. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, yeah, there are great places in your book where you talk about someone who, in or 1970 or so, re- reviews the materials and thinks it's not the gun, and then someone else later on uh, does tests, which suggests, yeah. no, no, this was very much the kind of gun uh, and the kind of bullet that was used to assassinate McGee. Yes, that's one of my uh, more embarrassing moments, actually. Uh, I read Thomas Slattery's, or Tim Slattery's book, rather, uh, uh, on the assassination of McGee. Uh, it's called They Got to Find Me Guilty Yet. And, uh, and in it, uh, the description of uh, going with this forensic scientist, Roy Jinks, uh, from the United States. And they had, they had the bullet that, uh, that killed McGee. It was in a little box with J.A. McD written on the box. One of McGee's teeth, uh, at least I assume, assume it's McGee's tooth, uh, and the bullet that killed him. So, uh, but they didn't have the gun. So they ran tests with a similar gun and decided that actually the bullet that uh, killed McGee was not of the same make as the bullets that Whalen had uh, when the, that had been in the gun. So, you know, Probably not then, or almost certainly not uh, the, uh, the gun that killed McGee. However, so anyway, I give this talk. I'm giving a talk to the Ontario For- Forensic Science, Science uh, Association to do a keynote. And I talk about this and I'm saying, oh, you know, the tests were done and here were the results. And someone puts his hand up and says, um, but we did the tests and uh, we found there was compatibility. And I said, no, 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 <laughs> no, no. They were done in 1970. And he said, no, no, we did them. We did them here. I said, no, you didn't have the gun. They weren't actually with the same gun. Uh, there was a different. No, no, we did the test with the same gun and the, and the bullet. The bullet's now gone missing, by the way. The gun we have, but the bullet's gone missing. But then he said, we did the same one. And I said, well, tell me more. And he said, yeah, 1973, we ran these tests. And he said, I did, I did it myself with the actual gun. And um, so I got through the Freedom of Information Act, the, uh, 
the report. And yeah, the, I mean, the bullet that killed McGee was certainly consistent with the gun that uh, that Whelan owned. Uh, so uh, again, as as when Tim Slattery found that, he was very re- he's very reluctant to accept this. Actually, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you can see that in the Freedom of Information correspondence. But ultimately, he did accept it, and his phrase was the the grip of suspicion has tightened around Whalen, as indeed it had. Well, there are there are so many uh, I, in your 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 books on McGee and the, the last book. There's so many. I mean, you could just go down so many different avenues here, um, because because it's just you know just once you try to nail something down like this, you realize how difficult it can be. I mean, what, what moving to the kind of maybe a bigger picture, what? What's the impact of McGee's assassination? Then, what's the what's the reaction to it? Oh, the reaction is shock and horror and fear. Um, if this can happen to McGee, uh, it could politicians are saying it could happen to any of us. Uh, so there's a great deal of fear. Um, uh, the population of Montreal at this time is 105,000. Reports are that there were 15,000 people in the funeral parade. Uh, at 80, 80,000 people lining the streets. I mean, even if even if those figures are, are exaggerated uh, you know, by a factor of two, they'd still be massive. Um, the, there was a, an outpouring of grief. Uh, there were, of course, pockets of celebration, uh, absolutely. Uh, there are lots of reports coming, quite a, quite a lot of reports coming in about uh, uh, people who were celebrating uh, McGee's assassination. Uh, we're looking now at Fenian supporters and sympathizers uh, uh, and others he'd alienated in in Canada. But there was a, a vast majority, for the vast majority, there was an outpouring of shock, anger, uh, grief. Um, uh, this was, of course, the context in which the trial took place and um, uh, something that John Hilliard Cameron emphasized uh, during the proceedings that we want justice here, not vengeance. Uh, uh, but getting, I mean, uh, separating the two is virtually impossible in the context of, uh, uh, of the aftermath of the assassination. Um, and, sh- and, then, and then the myth of McGee begins to uh, grow very rapidly with the Canada First movement uh, adopting Darcy McGee um, as their inspirational figure, uh, and they incorporate McGee uh, into uh, their plans for uh, in, uh, Canada becoming part of an empire of equals, uh, the British Empire of equals, and Canada eventually assuming the dominant role, the Imperial Federation sort of model that Karl Berger wrote about many years ago. Uh, they incorporate McGee into that vision that they have. They, they are inspired by his cultural nationalism um, and, pe- and people, Canada Firsters like Charles Mayer write poems about, uh, about McGee uh, and, and themselves want to uh, 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 further uh, sort of specifically Canadian literature. Uh, no, as McGee had said, uh, no literature, no national life. This is taken up by Canada Firsters as well. But others take him up in a different way. Um, uh, the, the one and only Catholic among the originators of the Canada First Movement, Father Dawson, extols Darcy McGee as a model 
of uh, Catholicism. So he's taken up in that way. This, the separate school, Darcy McGee, is taken up. And his speeches in favor of improved separate school legislation were still being used in Ontario in the 1930s. Uh, so there's that element. Uh, and then uh, there's another form of sort of a liberal imperialism uh, that emerges as well, uh, that, that McGee uh, is now associated with uh, a strong Canada that may be within the British Empire, but isn't going to bow down to whatever Britain says. It's going to be an independent Canada that can choose to do what Britain wants it to do uh, or choose not to do that. This is the uh, liberal sort of Irish uh, Irish constitutional nationalist strand exemplified by people such as Charles Murphy, uh, uh, also a cabinet minister under uh, Laurier, uh, uh, for example. Um, and more generally, um, uh, I mean, it's significant that in this, that we've had this discussion about McGee in which uh, much of our time has been taken up quite rightly with the assassination. But one wonders if McGee um, had be, would, would have just become another politician and sunk into relative obscurity had it not been for his assassination. Uh, because it, it was such a dramatic moment in, uh, in Canadian history. And it remains, in many respects, the greatest murder mystery of 19th century Canada. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, it may well be, and in fact, I think it is the case, that, uh, that uh, the assassination of McGee actually elevated his reputation a great deal. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. You know, when, when you go through those portraits of the the men who are meeting in Charlottetown and then in Quebec City and I suppose especially those Charlottetown photos and you go through the 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 the, the middle-aged white guys with beards uh, and or, or mutton chops and these suits that all look pretty similar and I mean aside from Johnny McDonald lounging in the one <laughs> one trying to stand out they it's so easy and, and I would say increasingly common to either you know either today completely forget them uh, to, to not remember them except for a few or or now to, to remember them in you know in, in some ways highly politicized or, or moralized fashions depending on what we think now so i think you're right that the assassination sets mcgee apart and it, it's easy to imagine an alternate reality maybe nicer for mcgee in his own life where he he lives but also in in terms of his historical memory where he's you know it just fades into obscurity yeah and i sometimes wonder um what would have become of McGee? Would he have stayed in Canada? Would he have gone to Australia to link up with his old friend, Charles Gavin Duffy? Uh, would he indeed have uh, remained uh, uh, focused on a literary life? What would he have made of Charles Stuart Parnell, uh, who allied with the Fenians uh, uh, and harnessed them into a constitutional nationalist program? How would he have dealt with that? Uh, uh, would he have continued to align himself with uh, conservative clerics? Uh, and, and because McGee moved around so much in the 43 years, he died a week before his 43rd birthday, in the 43 years that he was on this planet, uh, it's really hard to guess how much more he would have moved around in the subsequent years. But I will say this, uh, as a, so perhaps as a closing point, because you began with a contradiction. And... Um, Perhaps we could we could conclude unless you've got more questions for me. No, course. no, I, I'm I'm wrapping up. That's great. All right, with with some continuity, because when you look at McGee's program for Ireland before he was revolutionised in 1848, 
and you compare it with his new nationality program for Canada, the categories are the same. Uh, the context and content have changed, but the categories are the same. Cultural nationalism, crucial to his Young Ireland period, crucial to his Canadian period. Railway development, to integrate uh, four provinces in Ireland, uh, to integrate them socially, culturally, politically. Railway development in Canada, to integrate the, the vast distances uh, and different communities uh, of this land. Uh, protective tariffs for Ireland, uh, to protect and promote uh, Irish industry. Protective tariffs for Canada, uh, to pr promote and protect uh, Canadian uh, industry. Uh, all of these things, uh, uh, plus, of course, uh, an independent parliament, uh, or, or a semi-independent uh, parliament, it wouldn't have total independence for Ireland, um, and as much independence as Canada could get uh, through its own parliament uh, as well. Uh, all of these things uh, you can find in Thomas Darcy McGee's pre-revolutionary Young Ireland years, and all of them you can find after he develops, as he develops a new nationality in Canada. So in a sense, Thomas Darcy McGee coming to Canada was Thomas Darcy McGee returning to his younger self. All right. Well, a perfect uh, return, <laughs> kind of coming in circle, but a different, same, same sentiment, same vision, different country. Um, well, somewhat different country. Uh, I think uh, 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 McGee was lucky to have, have you as a, such a, 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 a devoted biographer, a devoted uh, a student, I guess, of his life. Uh, and, and, I, and I think we're very lucky, David. I want to thank you again for appearing uh, for the second time on 1867 and all that. Thank you very much, Chris. So keep up the good work. All right. Well, I, you know, after the, the last episode, I recommended buying uh, and reading David Wilson's new book, Canadian Spy Story. And I'll, I'll do so again here because I think there's a lot of McGee in that book, uh, including the details about McGee's assassination and its aftermath. Of course, if what you're if you're really fascinated by it, is McGee himself, then Wilson's two-volume uh, uh, biography is, is the place to go. Well, that's it for today. Uh, I do hope you're enjoying these bonus episodes, interview episodes of 1867 and all that. There will be uh, more, so keep your eyes and ears on your podcast feed. If you enjoy what you're hearing, do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.